Amen. So tonight we begin week five of our series, The Chase. And the previous four weeks, if you're just joining us, if you've been in and out a little bit throughout the series, uh, the first four weeks we looked at chasing meaning, chasing happiness, chasing accomplishment, and then last week was chasing destiny. And one of the things I wanted to say, because I've had a few people ask after the service, uh, if you ever miss a week and you want to stay connected, uh, we do have um, the sermons on iTunes podcast and SoundCloud for you Android users out there. And so if you ever want to catch a sermon, they always go live on Monday at 6 p.m. and you can just search Crossbridge Brickle, all the sermons from this past series, as well as all the previous series. Uh, They are up there and they will stay there. So if you want to stay connected, if you're out of town and uh, if you want to catch up on the series, you can always go there. And tonight we're in week five and uh, in, in the book of Ecclesiastes, we move to the fifth section, which is on wisdom. And it's about chasing wisdom, which is something that we all desire, just like the previous four. We all desire meaning in our life. We desire happiness and accomplishment, and we want to know about our destiny. And wisdom is a big part of that, because wisdom is how we determine what is going to provide meaning and happiness and accomplishment, and whether or not we're living the life that we're supposed to be living. But before we jump in, I have to make a distinction here, and that's this. There's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. So knowledge is acquired ideas and facts that is gained through uh, study or through research or through experience or through what other people tell you and then you hold on to that as knowledge. Wisdom is different from knowledge because wisdom is the ability to judge and discern aspects of knowledge and then apply it to your life if you deem it being beneficial or good or right or true. So wisdom is the ability to judge what is right and true and beneficial for you from the knowledge that you have acquired. And so knowledge is great, but wisdom is crucial. And here's what it says in the very beginning of our passage tonight. The teacher, who is a narrator through the book of Ecclesiastes, speaks about how he deeply desires wisdom. He says this in verses 23 through 25. I've always tried my best to let wisdom guide my thoughts and actions, I said to myself, I'm determined to be wise, but it didn't work. Wisdom is always distant and difficult to find. I searched everywhere, determined to find wisdom and to understand the reason for things. What's interesting about this section of the book is that most likely the author of Ecclesiastes is Solomon. And Solomon is regarded as the wisest person to ever live. And so the teacher, who's the narrator of this book, is the personification of Solomon. And yet here, the teacher is acting as if he has no wisdom. He's acting as if wisdom is not a part of his life. It remains distant, and he he can't find it. Which is weird, because as we're in week five of the series, the teacher has already shared a whole bunch of wisdom with us on meaning and happiness and accomplishment and destiny. And tonight, he's going to share wisdom as well. And so what is he saying? He's not saying that he doesn't have any wisdom. He doesn't have the ability to judge and discern different aspects of knowledge of what's right and beneficial. And Solomon certainly is not claiming that he doesn't have any wisdom. He's claiming that wisdom in its fulfillment, in its completion, to really be able to perfectly and rightly judge your thoughts and your actions and to determine what is wise remains distant. He may have aspects of wisdom, but 
it's not always what he expects. It doesn't always produce what he desires. Sometimes the things that he believes are wise are, in fact, foolish. So before we jump in tonight any further, I want to do a thought experiment. Are you guys down to do a thought experiment? Okay. One person said yes. So I'm going to do it with one of you. You have to, be, you have to pay attention. If you have a pen or pencil, grab your notes. You can open up your phone even because you're going to have to take down your answer. I think this is going to be interesting. Okay? So are you ready? Is everyone ready? Okay, you're supposed to respond there. Are you ready? Yes. That, wow, that was good. That's how, I, that's how I like it. Okay, so I want you to imagine a town of 600 people. A town of 600 people, and there is a viral outbreak. And you have two options. Option A, as you can see on the screen, option A is to save 200 people. And option B is you have a 33% chance to save everyone, but a 66% chance to save no one. So a town of 600 people, viral outbreak, you can save 200 guaranteed, or you have a 33% chance of saving everyone or 66, no one makes it, okay? Write down your answer, A or B, put it down, okay. You can take that off, go blank. Next town is another town of 600, different viral outbreak. And here are the two options here. This is option C and option D. Option C is that you are guaranteed to kill 400 people. You're guaranteed to kill 400, or if you check on the screen, you have a one-third chance of saving 600 or a two-third chance of saving no one. So you're going to kill 400 with option C or option D. You have a one-third chance of saving everyone or a two-third chance of saving no one. Okay, go back to blank, C or D, write it down. How many of you chose option A? Put your hands up. It's okay, there's not like a right answer, you know, it's not like you're a bad person. You're like, I don't know. Okay, how many of you chose option B? Okay, how many of you in the second one chose option C? How many of you chose option D? Okay, how many of you chose option A and option D? Raise your hand. Okay, what's interesting about this study that I read in uh, the New Scientist, they did this, this is a magazine, they did this study at large, and I know some of you are not wanting to raise your hand, uh, if you did choose option A and option D, or option B and option C, is that this study reveals something about humans, and it's the way that we think and how we judge what is wise. See, the majority of people, not everyone here because this is a really wise room, but the majority of people choose option A and D. They choose option A and D. The reason is, is because it feels better to justify your decision. Because option D A, you get to save 200, and option D, you have the chance of saving everyone, 600 people, or there's you know, a 66% chance of saving no one. But if you noticed, both option A and option C are the same thing, and option C and option D are the same thing. It's just worded differently. And the reason that they found this study was interesting is because when you see save 200 people, you think to yourself, I can justify that. Yes, I know some people are going to die, but I'm going to save 200, and so people won't blame me. But then when you see guaranteed to kill 400, you're like, whoa, I don't know if I can save them. Now, we have a bunch of people that don't even care, so a lot of you chose C. You're like, I don't even care. But what's interesting is that it reveals something. They said that as they did this study, on the whole, most people choose option A and D, even though option A and C are the same thing. And what it reveals is that we are self-justifying people. It means that we will choose something 
based upon what makes us feel like we can communicate to other people why we chose it. We can defend our decision. And so sometimes we may choose things that contradict. Sometimes we may choose things that are not wise, that won't actually produce the greatest good for others, but we'll choose it because we believe that we have an easier time defending our decisions to other people because we're all about justifying our decisions. And this is where the problem of chasing wisdom rears its head, is that we have this ability as humans to choose these things and these decisions that we believe are wise and smart, but they may in fact be foolish or they may in fact contradict other things. Because we oftentimes make decisions based upon how other people will perceive us or how we may be able to defend ourselves to others. And so the teacher here wants to, to hook us and wants to enable us to really see what he's going to say about what is truly wise. And so he's going to change his tactic. If you've been with us, he's been developing these themes over a course of many, many verses. And he's going to switch here by launching some Proverbs at you. And Proverbs are, are short, pithy statements that, that contain some wisdom. So here's the first proverb he says. He says, a good reputation is more valuable than costly perfume. This sounds good. We're like, we're on a good track here. You're like, okay, this makes a lot of sense. Costly perfume maybe lasts a whole day if it's like really expensive and really nice. Most likely a couple hours and you gotta, re you know, you gotta put a little bit more on. It's a vapor, it's fleeting, it's temporary, but a good reputation stays with you. A good reputation will carry on. So we got it, that's good. Good reputation is better than costly perfume. Here's the next proverb. And the day you die is better than the day that you were born. Is that a little jolting? You're like, how do we go from perfume to death, right? Like, the day you die is better than the day you are born. You see, he's wanting you to automatically ask the question, what happened here? Why the shift? Why the abrupt change? He's wanting you to, to look and say, what is he going to say next? And if you've been with us, you know that the teacher is going to say things that you don't expect. It's going to take a turn for the worse. And here's what he says. How is the day that you die better than the day that you are born? And what he's going to develop for us is he's going to say that at death's door, when you reflect upon death and when you're presented with death, it causes you to ask more critical and more crucial and more eternal questions than what you would ask at birth. He's using these things to cause you to think about how you live your life. Because if you've ever been around birth, if you had a children, and uh, this fits well with Mother's Day, if you have a niece or a nephew, you have your own children, or if you can imagine what it was like when you were born, there's all types of excitement, right? A birth is full of excitement. It's full of joy and flowers and celebrations and people are visiting. The parents are like, I don't know how we're going to make it the next couple weeks, but you know, everyone else is really excited. They're excited as well. There's this new life. And as you sit there and you look at this life, you think to yourself, there's so many things before this life. There's so many options, so many possibilities. Who is this child going to be? What is this child going to become? It is exciting. It is expansive. But death is the opposite. Death is very narrow. Death causes reflection. When you are presented with death, when you are around death, it causes you to ask different questions. 
it causes you to ask questions about yourself. If you've been to a funeral before, you know this. If you had someone close to you pass away, you know this. You begin to ask questions like, how am I living my life? What am I emphasizing in my life? What comes after life? You ask more important, more critical, and more eternal questions. And so the teacher says this in verse 2. It's better to spend your time at funerals than at parties. After all, everyone dies. So the living should take this to heart. And he's not telling you to like not hang out with people on the weekends. He said, I'm going to a funeral again. That's just kind of how I do it. You know, I'm trying to get wisdom. So I'm just going to funerals all the time because I'm, you know, Ecclesiastes told me to. So that's what I'm going to do. He's saying here that you should not wait until you're presented with death to ask the questions that death demands. It, it, death causes you to reflect and causes you to ask those questions about how you're living and what you're emphasizing and what comes after life. And he's saying, do not wait. Don't wait till you go to a funeral. Don't wait till the end of your life. Ask those questions now. It's similar to what Psalm 90 says. Psalm 90 says, teach me to number uh, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. The psalmist is saying that we should number our days. We should think intentionally about our days. We should ask those hard questions about how we're living so that we might have a heart of wisdom. You see, the same thing that the psalmist is saying is what Solomon is saying here, or the teacher, which is that a wise person reflects upon their life. He says this in verse 4, a wise person thinks a lot about death, while a fool thinks only about having a good time. Now, he's not saying that a wise person never has a good time. That's very important to understand because we, he spent the first really chunk of the book telling us that you are to enjoy your current situation. You should look upon the good at what is before you. You should eat, drink, and be merry. You should be content and be grateful for what you have. You should you trust in God's unfolding of your plan and enjoy your life now. Stop looking into the future. Enjoy your life now. He's saying that, and a wise person does enjoy their life. A wise person has good times, but notice the distinction here. He's saying that the wise person also thinks a lot about death or the wise person reflects upon their life. They ask those hard questions of their life. Whereas the fool, he says, is only concerned with having a good time. The fool is only concerned with just experiencing fun things and having a good time and maintaining comfort and security and looking for experiences. They are not intentionally thinking about their life. They're not asking those hard questions about life because the fool is consumed with FOMO, with fear of missing out on a good time. And there's two distinctions here. It's really important to get. He's saying here there's a difference between birth and death. And he's saying that the people that think about birth, the, think of the people that are only concerned with having a good time and excitement, they are concerned with all the feels. That's what birth is consumed with. It's all the feels. It's all the possibilities and what may happen and what's going to happen this weekend and what am I going to do later and, and who am I going to hang out with and what this, what's that experience going to be like and what do I need to do to accumulate more comfort and have a good time and to be more positive and to be more happy. And that the greatest concern for somebody that's driven by all the feels is FOMO, 
It's fear of missing out. May not just be fear of missing out on an event on a Friday night, but it's fear of missing out on all the fun, exciting experiences that life has to offer. That's what drives this type of person. But the other person that's wise is driven by something different. They're not driven by all the feels. They're driven by how their life functions. Because death is all about the function. It's about asking, how is your life functioning? It's asking, how are you living your life? It's asking, what are you emphasizing? It's asking the question of what comes after life. And the greatest concern for the person that is concerned with how their life is functioning, that's thinking about death, is that question of what happens after life. But you see, the natural disposition of us as humans is what? It's to be concerned with all the feels. It's to be consumed with thinking positive and just enjoying things and accumulating comfort and finding security and just trying to have a good time. We don't want to really reflect, but the wise reflect. Mark Twain has a great quote. He says, whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority, it is time to reform or pause and reflect. And so if you're looking at your life even tonight, you're asking the question of, well, what am I driven by? Am I driven by just having good times and all the feels, or am I driven by reflection and how my life is functioning? He says, essentially what the Mark Twain quote allows us to think about is if, if you're just concerned with having a good time and accumulating comfort and security and having great experiences, then it's time to pause and reflect and reform because that's how everybody lives. But as the teacher is saying here, that's not how the wise live. The wise reflect on how their life is functioning. And reflection is not easy, right? I mean, ask yourself this question. When's the last time that you've set aside intentional time to reflect upon your life? How long has it been? I mean, if I'm asking about myself, it's been a while. Because it, it requires discipline, and it requires intentionality, and it requires a willingness to be honest with ourselves about ourselves. And that can be hard to do. It can be hard to ask these questions. And I think there's two main obstacles to not having a consistent life of reflection. And the first one is silence. We're afraid of silence. Everything in our world is constantly on. There's noise everywhere. We're always being stimulated. If you walk down Brickell Ave, almost everybody will have headphones in when they're walking from place to place. You could walk two blocks and you have to have headphones in listening to music. Have you ever been in a restaurant or a business where there's not music playing in, on the speakers? If you do, if you walk in like a restaurant or a business and you walk in, there's no music, you're like, am I allowed to be here? Like, is this open? You know, like there's always music on everywhere. What happens when you come home? You turn on music. Maybe you turn on the TV. There's always noise. Always. I'm going to do an exercise. Another exercise. I want to have a moment of silence. You can close your eyes if you want, but just have a moment of silence. So you guys, are you guys cool with that? You're like, I'm nervous. All right, we're going to have a moment of silence. So let's be silent.
How'd that feel? How long do you think that was? 10 minutes? That was one minute. Even as I was counting, I was at 20 seconds, I was like, this feels really long. I told myself before I was going to do one minute, I was like, that's going to be real awkward. Did you, how did you feel, right? Some of us were glad that you heard the baby make a little noise. You're like, okay, that felt good. You're like hoping someone coughed. Maybe you're thinking about pulling out your phone. Some of you closed your eyes because you felt so awkward. Some of you were like, opened your eyes, like kind of, you know, when you kind of like open your eyes, but you don't want people to tell, but you can totally tell. And you're looking around like, what are people doing? Silence is weird. It's awkward. And I don't know if this happens to you in just taking a minute of silence, but maybe there was a moment where you started to think a little bit, right? Maybe there was a moment where you started to ask some questions. About 20, 30 seconds in, you're like, what am I doing? What am I supposed to do? But then you kind of calm down a bit, and you start to think. You start to ask questions. You start to ask those questions of your heart and your mind. And I think one of the fears that we have of silence is that we know that if we take intentional time to be silent, we know that questions are going to come up that we don't really want to answer. We're going to ask the question of, how am I living my life? What am I emphasizing? What is most important? Should that be most important? Where am I at with my relationship with God? What do I believe about what happens after life? Those questions can be scary, and so we don't want to be silent, but I don't think silence is the only obstacle that we have to reflection. The other obstacle to reflection is that we avoid sorrow at all costs. And what happens a lot of times when we're silent, when we spend time reflecting, is that the sorrow that we're struggling with, the things that we feel that bring about pain and broken expectations in our life and failures and things that cause us to feel sorrow will begin to flood your mind. And we don't want to feel those things a lot of times. We want to pretend like they're not there. We know they're there, and we know that if we spend time reflecting, especially in silence, that we're going to have to deal with them. And so we avoid it because we want to be positive people, right? All of us in this room, we want to be positive people. We want to be around positive people. We want to have a positive work environment. We want to read positive books and watch positive movies. We want to have a positive church. Everything that we desire in life, we desire it to be positive. In fact, most of the times, the only way that we want to actually encounter sorrow is when we're forced to by maybe attending a funeral or by watching other people suffer in TV and movie. Have you noticed that? So much of our TV shows and our movies are consumed with other people's struggles, other people's problems, drama, right? And we love to watch it. Because it kind of distances ourselves from our own sorrow. We don't really want to deal with that. We have this aversion to sorrow. And yet, here's what he says in verse 3. The teacher says, sorrow is better than laughter, for sadness has a refining influence on us. Sadness has a refining influence. Sorrow has a refining influence on us because sorrow produces wisdom through reflection. You actually ask the important and critical and crucial and eternal questions when you spend time dealing with your pain and with your sorrow and with the things that are bringing about fear in your life. You know, if there's no sorrow, then there's no joy. If there's no failure, there's no success. If there's no struggle, there's no pleasure. 
If there's no life of reflecting upon sorrow and spending time in silence, then there's not going to be a life of wisdom. And so the teacher here is challenging the things that we pursue and the things that we believe are wise. He's wanting us to really ask ourselves those hard questions of have you actually spent time thinking on the important questions of life? Have you actually spent time looking at your life, asking what you are emphasizing and how you're living? Have you dealt with and come to a place of belief in regards to what happens after life? Are you in touch with your sorrow? Do you spend intentional time in silence so that you might reflect? And he's concerned and he's challenging this in us because at the end of his journey, he has found wisdom in one place. And here's the one thing he says, verse 25, 29. He says, but I did find this. God created people to be virtuous. He's like, I've looked everywhere, I've looked all over the place, I've searched all these different things to find wisdom, to get wisdom, I've been chasing it, and through reflection, and through sorrow, and through reflecting on the important questions of life, the one thing that I have found is that God has created people to be virtuous, which means that God has not created us to live a life that is a free-for-all, where we're just kind of living a life for all the feels. We're just trying to enjoy all the good times and, you know, secure comfort for ourselves and make sure that everyone around us is positive and everything is positive, that God has created for us to be virtuous. And yet there's a problem with that. You may believe that. You may understand that. You may say that it makes sense that God has desired and designed us to be virtuous and this is wisdom. But then he says this in the second half of verse 29. But they have each turned to follow their own downward path. And if you're wondering who the they is, uh, that's you. (laughs) And that's me. Saying God has created you and me to be virtuous, to trust in his wisdom, to follow after the things that he says are good and right and will bring flourishing. But all of us in this room have decided to follow our own downward path, We convince ourselves that our path is upward and our path is good. It's going to bring flourishing. It's right. That our wisdom is correct. We convince ourselves of that. But in fact, we have all chosen a path that leads downward because we're self-justifying people and we make decisions based upon how we can defend ourselves to others and what looks good to others because we're consumed by that. And so the question is, what do we do what do we do? Because it's not only here that it's very, in, in, in the rest of Scripture, it's very clear to us that God has designed us and created us to be people of virtue, to be people of obedience, to be people that follow after him, that trust in him, that ask questions about what is wise and good and then follow after that. Jesus says something very simple. He says, if you love me, you will follow my commands. It's very clear, very simple. It's not hard to understand what that means. If you love me, you will follow my commands. But the problem is, we have all chosen to follow our own path. We have all done that. So what do we do? And the answer is that we reflect on wisdom. We reflect on wisdom. You're like, what does that mean? Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1.30 what that means. 
It says that God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God, and he has made us pure and holy, and he has freed us from sin. So to reflect on wisdom means to reflect on Jesus Christ, because he is wisdom itself. And so what happens when you reflect on Jesus Christ? You recognize a few things that by faith in who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for you on the cross, that what? Look at the verse. You are united with, with God. There's no longer a gap between you and God. There's no longer anything that separates between you and God. You're united to him. And that Christ has made you right with God. This is really important because all of us here are self-justifying people that have followed our own path and we take foolishness and we convince ourselves that it's wisdom and we're consumed with just feeling good and having a good time and being positive and having positive people around us and we don't want to reflect, we don't want to be silent, we don't want to deal with sorrow and yet by faith in Christ as we reflect upon him, we know that even though we are those people, we're united with God because of our faith in Jesus Christ. We are made right with God. We are free. We are forgiven. As he says, we are pure and holy, something we are not in and of ourselves, but because of Christ we are. And why is this important to reflect on Jesus Christ? Because when you reflect on Jesus Christ and when you believe and when you know that regardless of the decisions you've made, regardless of the foolishness that you followed after and claimed to be wisdom, regardless of what has happened to you or what you have done, that by faith in Jesus Christ, you are united with God, you are made right with God, that you are forgiven, that you are loved, that you are made holy and pure, it causes what in you? It causes in you a desire to be virtuous, a desire to trust God's wisdom. You're not going to do it perfectly, but a desire to follow after God, a desire to say, no, I need to spend some intentional time being silent and dealing with sorrow and pain and reflecting, and I need to really trust in what God says is good and right. So what we are to do as people is that we reflect on wisdom itself, which is Jesus Christ, and then that compels us to live the way that God has designed us to live, which is a life of virtue, chasing after God. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that we can come here tonight and, and really wrestle with things that are difficult for us. Lord, it's not easy to be honest with the things that we call wise. It's not easy for us to, to be silent and to reflect and to deal with the sorrow and the pain that we're going through. As we prayed about earlier, God, that today is Mother's Day and it's a day of joy and celebration, but for many it's a day of pain and of sorrow. And yet, God, regardless of how we feel today, regardless of our emotions, by faith we know that we are free and we are forgiven and we are loved by you. That we are united with you, God. That we are made right because of what Christ has done. That we've each turned our own way, we've followed our own path, and we've convinced ourselves that foolishness is wisdom, and yet, 
You have never given up on us and you never will give up on us. That you have constantly coming to claim us with your love. So when we reflect upon you, Jesus, and as we reflect upon you, would we be moved by your love so that we might ask the hard and important questions of our life of how are we living and what are we emphasizing? And will we be assured of what happens after life? Because you have promised by faith we will be with you. So we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight is the second week of the month, and on the second week of the month, we're accustomed to hearing from a life story, and we normally do it in the beginning of the service, but decided tonight to have uh, Carlos Mata share his life story now as we prepare to take communion afterwards. So I want to invite Carlos up, if you guys will give him a round of applause as he prepares to share his story. Good afternoon, church, and happy Mother's Day. All right, so for those that don't know me, my name is Carlos Mata. I'm the sales director of a real estate brokerage and CEO of a successful lead sourcing company that helps distressed homeowners. But things have not always been so good. I've had many financial difficulties, made several enemies, and my life has been a roller coaster of emotions. I'm originally from Caracas, Venezuela, and grew up in many places, such as Argentina, Spain, New York, Miami, Denver, and Panama. I was born to celebrity parents that were famous internationally for their work in telenovelas, soap operas in Spanish. My father had a very successful career in music as well. I had a privileged childhood, but Christ was not the center of our home. I believe that's why my parents eventually got divorced. My life story is one of a lot of pain and profound suffering. I dealt with issues of abandonment as a child because of my father's career. I was sexually abused by a close friend of the family's at the age of four. I had no emotional, no geographical stability. And as a result of moving around so many times, I was always the new kid in school. Although I was a great student and socially gifted, I became a rebellious teenager and fell into a life of drug abuse. I went to many parties, shared my bed with many women without sharing my last name with them. I broke many hearts, had my heart broken, and always found ways to justify my actions. I was too smart for my own good. I was lost in a life of sin, thinking I was living life to the fullest, chasing vapors. It wasn't until 2008 that I hit bottom. I was found naked, convulsing on the streets, and Baker acted into a hospital. I was later admitted into a psychiatric ward where I attempted to take my own life. I was diagnosed with psychosis and a mild case of schizophrenia. In other words, I was well, I clinically lost my mind. I then voluntarily became an inpatient at a residential rehab where I received all types of therapy all day, every day for almost a full year. No TV, no radio, just therapy. I healed quite a lot. 
I learned a lot about myself and became very involved in Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, 12-step programs. I became a reputable recovering addict and helped many people that were still suffering. Even after all this, I still relapsed and fell back into drugs, alcohol, and sexual immorality. But why? After everything that I had been through, how could this happen to me? In AA, they teach us that we have to rely on a higher power. And I lived my life according to these steps. But the missing piece for me in that roadmap to life was that that higher power has a name. His name is Jesus Christ. You see, I've spent all my life trying to understand and to heal my brokenness. That's why I got a degree in psychology. I read all those books on self-help, philosophy, looked into sects, secret societies, world religions, all kinds of smoke and mirrors. Before truly receiving Christ, I used my head knowledge, logic, and reason to explain the world around me and to establish the guidelines as to how I should live my life. I was my own God, and a terrible, a terrible one at that. Even after rehab, my life was still unmanageable. I was a slave to money, relationships, recognition, acquiring power, and so many character defects. I committed crimes, dealt with corrupt politicians, and even trafficked illegal substances. It's a miracle I'm alive. I kept searching for answers in all the wrong places, trying to fill that void, but that void in my heart was still there. I did not come to receive Christ in humility. I had to be humbled. I had a false sense of humility, and that was because I'm great with words. But my knowledge of the word, capital W, and my relationship with God was distorted. That's because I wanted him to fit my description of who he was. How convenient. It was only until I confessed, repented, and completely surrendered my broken life to Christ in 2012 that I was set free from all my shackles. And what a moment that was. I had what some would argue to be a psychotic break the moment that I was turning my life over to Christ. It's very difficult to put into words the miracle that I experienced. It was, in fact, spiritual warfare, and my soul was at stake. It was not a gradual conversion, but instead a dramatic resurrection. When it all happened, and Jesus gave me a new chance at life. I felt as though I was born again. I was born again. The colors around me were brighter. I could appreciate the beauty of our Lord's creation all around me. Indescribable joy and peace. Shalom. That void inside me was no longer there. The things that mattered to me before no longer mattered. I was given a new heart a heart of flesh, and I stand before you here today a new man. I am that prodigal son. I am that miracle. I now understand how foolish I was to think that I could ever save myself. No psychology course, no motivational speaker, not even anything that I could ever do for others or my community 
could ever save me. Only by God's grace and his mercy could I stand here and tell you how much I love who I am and who I'm becoming. I have a wonderful relationship with God, with my family, and all the people around me. I am now proud to be a good example for my three younger brothers. Santi, welcome home. I have been blessed with a great job in a position of leadership. And although I may seem to be in real estate, I'm really a missionary in disguise because I have found purpose. I am called to glorify his name every chance I get. And I thank you all for giving me the opportunity to do so here today. He who has been forgiven much loves much. And I can honestly say that I love you all very much. And if you haven't found that profound joy that I speak of, I encourage you to surrender today. I do it every single day. And there is freedom in surrender. God bless you. Happy Mother's Day.